You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Datages friends and family, welcome to our, our second episode of Entrepreneur's Corner here on Datages. You may wonder why I'm wearing my army hat for today's episode, and we'll get into that. Uh, joining us today in the Entrepreneur's Corner is a remarkable entrepreneur named Kent Kersey. Kent founded Acre Homes, his current venture in 2021. Acre is a unique and innovative home buying platform. We'll let Kent tell all of us more about that in just a few minutes, but First, I want to have a chance to get to know Kent a bit more. Kent, welcome to Datages and welcome to The Corner. Chad, it's great to be here. Really appreciate this show. I've been listening to it pretty consistently now. And I love your approach here of let's tell stories and through that, share some some wisdom and hopefully let other people learn from our mistakes uh, and grow from those mistakes. I think that's one of the roles of, of being a dad and being a son is gaining from that intergenerational wisdom here on Datages. It's been fun hearing your story. I'm, I'm looking forward to telling mine. Yeah, absolutely. Being a father and being a mentor as well, being able to help individuals in a professional setting, as you said, to avoid the pitfalls and mistakes along the way. That's what the community is all about. And that's what the Datages friends and family is all about. And speaking of community, Kent, you and I share one very important common element in our background. We're, we're both Stanford alums. Although I just went to Stanford as an undergrad, and you were part of the prestigious combined JD-MBA program. Maybe you can share a little bit about your educational journey and how you landed at Stanford and about that program, which I know a bit about, and I know how impressive and how rigorous that program is, but you're certainly a superstar coming out the other end. Well, I appreciate that, Chad. I think I, like most people that are at that place, feel lucky that I got in and they assume they made a mistake. And then the whole time trying to, to prove your worth I'm also extremely jealous of the fact that you got to spend your undergrad at that institution. It seemed like a whole lot more fun than, you know, though I'm proud to be a, a graduate of the United States Military Academy. I remember walking around Stanford and watching the hustle and bustle of all those students and running from class to class and, and jumping in fountains and all the things that, that the undergrads got to do at Stanford and thinking, this is kind Fountain of- hopping is definitely the local sport. Yeah. And all the fountains are designed so that they can accept fountain hopping, which was great when I was there because I had young kids that could go splash around on them, which was an extra bonus. But I remember thinking this is kind of the bizarro West Point. I don't know if you know the reference, but it has, you know, instead of granite, it has sand columns, you know, and instead of kids rushing between classes and you have kids riding their bikes and skateboards, it's, it's the same kind of energy, the same kind of talent, just a different environment. And I think a great institution that produces some amazing talent, some great leaders in our country. So proud to be part of Stanford. And I was very lucky to, to jump in board, to go through that joint program. I joke and tell people that it's just a, 
testament to my like lack of knowledge of how the, how the world works outside of the military. And I'll tell a little bit about that background. But when I showed up at Stanford at the law school, ran into some amazing people. I had a very formative experience and a great kind of bond with my classmates there. And then I ran into the concept of entrepreneurship at Stanford and it really kind of changed my life. But backing up, I think, because I think it's important we're talking about generational knowledge. You know, how did I get started on this path? I think back to, I love the name of your podcast, Dadages or Adages, because you think back to the lessons that you learned from, from your family. I come from a third generation military family. My granddad was a World War II vet and his father was a sheriff in Oklahoma. He actually died in a gunfight when my granddad was 11 years old. So at the age, my son, or one year older than my son right now, my granddad was the oldest man in the house because his dad had fought in a gunfight as a sheriff, killed the bank robber, the bank robber killed him. And the earliest story, you know, the kind of the, we don't talk about it much, but the kind of the founding story of our, our family's history of service comes from that event and the idea that my granddad was saying, my dad was a hero, I'm going to serve as well. One of his adages, which he didn't say out loud, but kind of lived his life was, some rules are meant to be broken. So he enlisted before he was allowed. He lied about his age, went into the military. Uh, he joined the 45th Infantry Division, deployed for World War II, did three beach landings in World War II, Sicily, Salerno, and Anzio. You know, you see the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, or Saving Private Ryan. Anzio is one of the bloodiest beach landings that people don't know about on the uh, Italian peninsula there. And then ultimately ended his tour liberating a concentration camp in Dachau. And I have a picture up here on the wall of him riding a horse he stole from the Germans and was riding around the concentration camp uh, with his, and he, his lessons there. He said, hey, you know, if you're going to steal a horse, make sure you steal one for your regimental commander. So the guy right next to him is his boss and they're running around. And I just remember thinking there's a combination here between the discipline and folks it takes to be a military officer and be successful in combat and then the willingness to kind of break some rules and, and actually have some fun as well. That's important and keeps you going. Pretty great preparation for the business world, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. And my dad obviously learned a ton from his dad. He uh, went to West Point, graduated, went to the 82nd Airborne Division, deployed for Desert Shield, a Desert Storm. If you remember that when we were growing up and I was a kid, my son's age, I was you know in fourth grade. And, and I remember my, my dad woke me up in the middle of the night. He actually took my blanket off of me because he was like, he had let me use his army poncho liner, his blanket, as kind of what I slept in at night. And he needed it to pack in his bag. And he was thinking, Son, I got to take this. Yeah. I got to go. It's part of my, my packing list. And uh, I was like, all right. And he assumed he'd be back in 30 days. Uh, we didn't see him in over a year as he, he deployed. And, and that was a fundamental kind of piece of my growing up and remembering that. And the community there, I was at Fort Bragg at the time, which is right down the road from where I live now. And the community rallied around us. The, the country rallied around the military families and and that was the first time we'd been in kind of this major conflict. We'd had, had some smaller conflicts since Vietnam. And then when I was coming of age and looking at schools, I kind of had an itch that I wanted to do something different. But I also felt like I wanted to prove that I could also serve. And so I went and applied to the West Point. I got in and I was we were in, in combat at the time. And I was kind of hesitant about like, oh, to make the right decision. I want to I want to go strike out and do something on my own. And then my Sophomore year ended, and as soon as you step foot in class at West Point on your junior year, you're committed for five years post-graduation to the military. And I remember I, I thought about it, and I prayed about it, and I thought, is this the right decision? Ultimately, I decided, yes, I was going to serve my country. This is what I wanted to do. And then two weeks later, 9-11 happened. 
and two planes crashed into the World Trade Centers. And I remember feeling and thinking, I made the right decision because I'm in the absolute right place where I need to be to serve my country when it needs me. And that was a pivotal moment of just absolute clarity. I think that in life, you have very few of these moments where you feel that you just know that you're in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. This is how things are supposed to be and that you can have a positive impact. I joined the 101st Airborne after graduating from, from West Point, doing my basic training, Ranger School, Airborne School, all that. And I had the honor and privilege of deploying with them to Iraq, blood soldiers in combat in Southwest Baghdad. Uh, it was a tough time for soldiers on the ground in Iraq at that point in time, because we're in this inflection point. And again, slight history lessons now was very fresh in my mind, but you know, we came into Iraq, we took down Saddam Hussein, we did not find weapons of mass destruction to British chagrin. And then there was this lull of what are we doing here before we did the surge and we came in and we kind of doubled down on Iraq and, and pacified some of the insurgent elements and Al-Qaeda elements that had entered into the country. So we were kind of in the emergence of Al-Qaeda, but the waning of U.S. willpower to be in that conflict and understanding of why we were there in the first place. Uh, and it was a huge leadership challenge to look your soldiers in the eye and find the purpose behind what they were doing. And you ended up having to find it in the day-to-day, do the right thing every day. And you know, we had a lot of casualties when we were over there. The Al-Qaeda elements that were, that were there were very effective at putting bombs on the road, blowing up our vehicles, of kind of hiding amongst the civilian population. Um, and we were learning as we went. We, you know, I read some books about other conflicts where there had been insurgencies and tried to apply those lessons learned. We had some successes there. And out of that experience uh, kind of drove my decision to ultimately try to go and fix that. That was my goal of leaving. I was like, I'm going to fix this. It's hard to fix it from within the system. Youthful uh, optimism. I'm going to go figure out how the world works and I'm going to come back and I'm going to stop this from happening again. You need to have a, you know, just like any other organization, you know, military is a fantastic organization full of fantastic people, but it needs a mission. It needs to understand what it's doing. It needs to understand why it's doing it more importantly so that people can make better decisions. And I think at that point in time, I was frustrated with our lack of ability to articulate why we were in this conflict. I think the American people were actually somewhat frustrated with that. Uh, though I was super proud of being in the service, I was super proud of the guys that we worked with. I thought it was my responsibility to go figure out how the world works, the real world works, because I'd been in this military bubble and I went off to Stanford and went to law school to try to figure out you know, the DNA of our country and how we, we piece things together by understanding the law. Pretty quickly fell in love with the study of the law, but realized that the profession was pretty individual contributor-ish. One piece of advice I got from my father is he said, if you know everything there is to know about the law, but not be a lawyer, and if you can know everything there is to know about accounting, but not be an accountant, you can be both successful and happy in business. No, that's, that's right. I was very fortunate that I led this class at the business school. And in my mind before this, and this is, sounds very naive, but business in my mind was what every military officer does, which is not everyone, but go work at a big four consulting firm or go work at a big bank or go be a middle manager at a larger company and build your, your way up. That wasn't as exciting to me. But I added a class at, at Stanford Business School on entrepreneurship where they actually brought in entrepreneurs, similar to what you're doing here on this podcast, which is why I'm really excited about uh, this opportunity to speak. You know, the seminar-based classes are really phenomenal, especially in a business school environment, because you get to dip your toe into a lot of different pools along the way and get a lot of broad perspective. That's right. And so not to dig in too much on that front, but two entrepreneurs that came in, um, one was the Randy Hetrick, who, who started the TRX and built the TRX bands in, in the gyms. And you know, he was telling a story about just selling these things out the back of his car. And, and the instructors were just 
making fun of his products and he was laughing it off. And I was like, this guy's selling nylon straps with handles on them for 150 bucks a piece. And he thinks he can build a business. Of course, they had both invested in his business because they knew that he was going to get it done. And he built a great business out of that. And I have TRX bands in my home gym right now. So I, I use them all the time. They're great. Uh, and then the other guy was, was a guy, Kirk Hawkins, who built a company called Icon Aircraft. And he you know, was a fighter pilot and he kind of had no business in building his own light aircraft but he decided that this is a product he would want and he designed it he hired engineers to build it he built a prototype he he had all the benchmarks to raise funding throughout he actually got light sport aircraft from his brain into production over the course of several years and i kept thinking if these guys can do this can take sheer willpower a little bit of vision and leadership and discipline and execute on a mission with just focus anybody literally in the u.s can do anything if they just have that kind of willpower and are willing to kind of learn along the way. And it changed my life. And I said, I want to go build companies. This is where I first stepped into real estate technology. And I, I, I got linked up with a great entrepreneur out here, Mike Schneider, who is my co-founder for this new venture. So we hit it off. I was the COO. Um, we took a, a real estate tech company from Series A all the way through acquisition by Remax together in the trenches. And that was a great experience. I learned a lot about how different it is just to build a tech company on the West Coast versus the East Coast. Uh, it's just a different environment. When you talk about real estate tech, I think many people would say that's an oxymoron. There is no technology <laughs> in real estate. Nobody's going to adopt something new. Tell us a little bit about that and sure. what that product was and how you managed to work it into an industry like the real estate industry. You hit the nail on the head there. We were kind of early days. Nowadays, we have you know machine learning AI is all the buzz. Basically, they had built a model that could predict how likely an individual was to sell their home in the next six to 12 months. And then it could stack rank people and say, this person's five times you know, as likely as, as the national average to sell their home this year, this person is less likely. Um, and, you know, they did that by pulling all the data they could on the individual and on the property. And they trained it over a number of years with the target variable being, did this house sell? And then they could, you know, basically create a predictive model that said, so as, okay, a, given, so as an ex-military guy, you're basically building a targeting system. You know, the, yeah, this is, this is kind of very Palantir-esque, right? Uh, we're trying to figure out. And again, there needs to be a human in the loop because all I can do is say this is more likely a target or not a target. You need, you need somebody to verify. That person, of course, in this instance would be a real estate agent. You got to call these folks up. It was a pretty powerful model and we could hand, you know, people and we, we were focused on that relationship layer. This is really the, the niche we were focused on is that at the time, Zillow and everybody else is selling real estate agents leads, right? And so they're cold leads, people you don't know. We were saying, plug in your phone, like we built an app on your phone actually to pull in all of your email contacts, all of your phone contacts, and we would clean all that up because no real estate agent actually has a, a cleaned up CRM because they're out there hustling. They're not inputting things into a CRM. So we basically built a mini CRM for them. And then we would stack rank all of the people that they should call this year. Like here's the hundred people out of all the people, 3000 people in your contact list, call these hundred. And we had these anecdotes where we go back to people after a year and say, Hey, 40 of those people sold their homes. How many of those deals did you win? And they said, Oh, actually I didn't actually end up calling any of those people. <laughs> you learned technology development. You learned the process of selling technology into an audience that isn't necessarily receptive to it, helping people adopt a new business model. And you really got a handle on the residential real estate market from the inside out. So it sounds like it was a great pathway to leading to your current venture with, with Acre. I want to back up and one say, first of all, thank you. 
Thank you for your service. Thank you for your family's service. Thank you for everything you've done for this wonderful country. And also to kind of focus on how what you have gone through that prepared you for tackling these kinds of challenges, having worked in a complex and dangerous environment in a war zone, but also complex in starting to understand dynamics of, as you said, how the world really works and where institutions can be broken and what it takes for those of us to be able to step up and fix those institutions. And that's not easy. It's never easy in any institutional environment or in any systematic environment. We're trying to fix an institution or fix a system. And when I was doing some uh, research to prepare for this podcast, I wanted to learn more about the 101st Airborne that you're a part of. And I found this awesome quote from the first commander, and I'm sure you've heard it, but I want to share it with our friends and family. Major General William C. Lee said that the 101st has a rendezvous with destiny. And I feel like that those words, I'm actually hearing that come through in everything that you're talking about in your experience and everything that prepared you for coming into the position to be the leader of an organization and an initiative like Acre. And we're arriving at that point in in this podcast where now I'm going to put you under the hot lights and put the spotlight on you. And this will be your Shark Tank moment. And this is your chance to give, whether you want to call it the elevator pitch, the background story, you have the opportunity right now to present to me and to the Datage's friends and family, what is Acre? Why should we care? What's it about? And how are you guys going to change the world? Excellent. Yeah. And I think that the, that was, the, the quote was, the, the context around that is the 101st Airborne was created and launched after World War I. So they're looking across and they've seen all these other historic divisions that had fought in World War I, and they all have this great history. And the commanding general said, hey, we have, this unit has no history, but it has a rendezvous with destiny. And that, that was the, the power there. And the, and the soldiers of uh, the 101st have, have now have a very storied history as they're moving forward in World War II and, and other conflicts around the globe. I was very proud to be able to serve with them. I'm going to tell an army story to get us into Acres. I think this is a fun transition. Perfect. And a dadage uh, from my dad. Uh, so... You know, the, the learnings you get from the older generation, from folks that came before you and your mentors aren't normally, aren't these huge lessons. They're typically these little tidbits that can fundamentally shift how you do business because they're super important, but no one would tell you, you never read it in a book, you gloss over it as being kind of an aside. Uh, and one of those stories, and they all come through stories. So this is why I love this podcast format. But my dad used to tell the story about young soldiers who were drivers of vehicles and how important it was for them to be able to stencil their name on the front of that vehicle. So once they put their name on that vehicle, they took 10 times better care of it. It was theirs, right? Private Jones, you know, specialist Smith on the front of the vehicle. Uh, this is my vehicle. I'm going to take care of it. This That's my Jeep. Me. <laughs> yeah. In no true sense of the word, did they own that vehicle? You know, it was right. on a, you know, the army owned that vehicle. Uh, they might have signed for it on a piece of paper, but ultimately, like, there was a, a bunch of other folks that, that had it in their property book, the commander of that unit, but they treated it like it was their own. Um, and that made a big difference. And when I was in, when I took over as an executive officer for a company, uh, when I was deployed to Iraq, I came into a company and we were an infantry company. We were supposed to be walking with backpacks and we had been delivered you know, 27, 28 up armored Humvees to do our missions. And so there was no culture in the company of like, how do we take care and maintain these things? And the guy that I took over the job for was trying to do it all himself. And so he's trying to manage all the maintenance on all these vehicles and make sure that they all got in and got the preventative maintenance before missions and got taken care of afterwards. And they're just breaking left and right. And I remember that that story from my dad. I said, well, who who owns these vehicles? Like, who's the drivers? And 
So we don't have enough vehicles for every platoon to have enough. So I'm just shifting them. So he's hot betting these vehicles from, from platoon to platoon. I changed. I said, no, 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 no. You're going to lose your mind. This is impossible task. You cannot own all these vehicles. We have to assign owners. And then, you know, so I assigned, you know, every platoon needed six vehicles to go on patrol. I assigned five to each. And I said, you guys own these. And now you have to, 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 to share. Uh, it's kind of a, like a, telling, telling your family, your, your kids to share. I was like, you guys have to share. And so if you're going to give him your crappiest vehicle on his mission, he's going to give you his crappiest vehicle. So you got to make sure that you're, you know, we're doing this multiple times. You're, you're taking care of each other. You're not handing people your, your worst truck. And I didn't have to do a single bit of maintenance. I didn't have to manage the situation. I gave ownership to my, my tune layers and tune servants. They own those trucks. I'm going to go fight another fight. And that power of ownership is really important. And I think in Acre, what I learned throughout my life is giving people a sense of ownership in their place is important. Giving people a sense of ownership in their company they're building is important. Every every employee at, at the companies that I build has a piece of equity in that company. I think it's really important for them to, sh- to share in that sense of ownership that they have a piece of this uh, company. And so, you know, with Acre, uh, what we're doing is we're allowing for residents of homes to share in the ownership of that home, to have a a better financial outcome over the course of time that they're in that home than a, than a mortgage and to have a 10 times better experience than a mortgage. Um, that's the ultimate goal. And so we're focusing it on the residents in the end by aligning incentives and creating that sense of ownership in that home. We're also providing a better return for our investors because they're getting great homes with uh, high quality residents that care just about much about that home as they do in the ultimate uh, disposition of that home as they do. Um, they're going to take great care of it. And we're able to bring in, in real estate terms, slightly higher cap rates for investors, uh, a strong return on investment. But you know, the ultimate goal here is we were focusing on this as a product for individuals who have been frustrated, who would otherwise buy a home, but could acre it instead. So the product comes down to how, how do you do that? And and Ken, if we could pause here a moment, I do want to take sure. a step back and just explain a little bit better the landscape of modern home ownership uh, sure. and how that has changed over the last few years for those in the friends and family who may not be aware of it. There's always been this conventional structure around home ownership. Either you owned a house, it was yours, you got a loan from the bank, you had a mortgage, you pay the bank every month and you keep the house and eventually you pay it off and you own it free and clear. Or you're in the other bucket of people in the world, which were renters, and you were renting a house and somebody else owned it as a landlord. You know more about this than I do, but my understanding is the world has evolved now and there are all these different models and some of the other models out there that are evolving are investor owned homes where either an individual investor buys that house and rents it to a, a family or now it's becoming institutionalized just like all other facets of real estate where major institutions are owning large swaths of homes, hundreds and thousands of homes in many cases and are now renting those to people. Can you maybe fill in some blanks that I'm leaving in terms of what that landscape is and where Acre then came into the equation? This institutionalization of single family residential as an asset class really emerged post the great financial crisis. Yeah, And so you had groups that came in and recognized that there's a lot of homes out there that are undervalued and they picked them up and they turned them into rentals and uh, kind of proved out the model that you know, the, the old adage was that you needed a certain amount of operational density to make real estate work. And so multifamily works, but single family would be very difficult. And they kind of prove that that's not true uh, and that you're, you can you actually operate these you know large uh, portfolios of homes. And they also got 
part of the, the problem they solved here is they built the bridge to institutional capital where these larger pools of capital could see this as an asset class and want to deploy into it in kind of a core core plus model where they, they you could look at this as a safe place to put money over time. Ultimately, they, you know, that's, you know, I, and I don't have the percentages right, but it's like one or 2% of the U.S. housing stock at, at, at most has turned into these institutionalized single family. Uh, well, very small but on a global basis. Yeah, it is very small. And but there's certainly a lot of headline risk associated with that. Right. Because, you know, when we think of the American dream, we think I'm going to own a home, I own a piece of land and a piece of dirt. And I'm going to get my my farm and my, you know, my 40 acres and my and my mule. And I'm going to go out and 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 survive on my own. It's kind of baked into who we are. But I think that it also but that, you know, that American dream is is not necessarily in the, the mortgage as a product is not necessarily aligned with how people are living their lives today. Because today, people homes are one more expensive than they were, which is unfortunate, and more of a product of supply and demand than anything else. But also, uh, people are, like we said, are moving more often, and they're not just moving. You know, seventy percent of moves are still within the same MSA, but people are also moving different cities, and their careers dictate that. And I think that the the myth that you're going to be in that same home for thirty years is broken pretty early in your home ownership life cycle because you have a couple kids and you're like, this home doesn't work. We got to get the next home. And then later on you think it's your forever home, but then your kids go off to school and you're like, we don't need all this home. And we'd rather live closer to downtown or we'd rather live closer to the beach. So over the course of people's lives, they actually live in a number of homes. The transaction costs on the back end of that are very punitive for folks. You're paying, you know, six to 8% of the home value to, you know, transition out of that home. And then a on the upfront, you're paying. And God forbid you have to leave during a dip in a real estate market. Exactly. And you're taking, again, all of the risk is on you. You're taking a huge lever bet on a single asset. You know, we would all make fun of somebody that maybe not make fun of them, maybe would be jealous because they were right. But if they were taking a huge lever bet on a single stock, you would say, okay, I hope you know something I don't know. And we're asking people to take this huge lever bet on a single asset at their home. God forbid the value goes down. And yeah, they have to pay 6% of that home value, 8% of the home value to sell the home. And they also owe the bank money because the home value dropped by a number of percent. So it is a big bet to put on people's shoulders, which is why I did not buy a home in California. But I remember thinking I would buy a piece of this home. Like I would, I would buy a piece of the home and rent the rest from, from investors. The folks that want to take a long bet on uh, real estate and, and the folks that were taking a long bet, there was a lot of investment flowing in from, uh, from out of the country into California at the time, driving up home prices as well. I, I would let, Folks that want to take a bet on this real estate, take a bet on it all the time. I just want to be able to have a piece of it. So from an occupant's perspective, from the resident living in the home, help us understand the difference in their experience being a resident in an acre home that where the capital for the home comes from investors versus a conventional scenario where that person is getting the capital from a bank under a mortgage? Yeah, great question. Um, it starts, you know, we, we work with real estate agents just like you would with getting a mortgage. So you're working with an agent to find a home and, you know, our partner agents, the folks that, that, that refer us business, they'll say, hey, you should go, you can get pre-qualified with a mortgage or you can go, you should also get pre-qualified with Acre, especially if you're not, if you're uncertain, this is going to be your forever home. And you can, you can compare the two options. With Acre, we're pulling in every home that hits the MLS in, in, in the areas we operate, and we're pre-filtering them for folk, for homes that we would invest in. And so generally speaking for us, these are newer homes. We're, we're looking at down to the neighborhood street level, but this is, we're looking at homes with high typicalities and we can price them accurately. We're looking at homes that 
uh, have historically had low days on market for that particular area so that we know that they can be disposed of easily at the back end. And we're looking, again, for newer homes with le- no major issues. And then there's a human element in, in this approval process. We actually human, still have a human in the loop that's looking for the power lines in the backyard, the other anomalies that you would get to make sure we're not you know, pulling in homes that, that we wouldn't want to invest in. The individuals are actually good partners in this because they also don't want to live in the home with power lines or, or railroad tracks in the backyard. It's coming alongside the resident, helps us avoid some of those pitfalls. And so then when you find a home you love, you decide you want to work with Acre, we'll actually take, we'll say, great, they'll enter into a contract with us to say, we agree to live in this home for three years. We actually fix their payment for three years on the home. It's generally cheaper than they would pay for a fully loaded mortgage on that home. So it's a little bit less expensive. And then they can opt if they want to share in, you know, 50% of the home's appreciated value at the end or, or 10%. It's a slightly different monthly payment. It's a little bit more if you want more of the appreciation. And this is something we learned from working with our early customers. They said, how do I get more of the appreciation? Our investors say, how do we get more yield? Because real estate equals yield. And we found this nice balance and we can hand off some of the appreciation and the customer takes on a little bit more of a monthly payment. We'll buy the house. Typically speaking, we come in as, you know, in this, this area as an institutional ask buyer or as an investor with an all cash offer so we can get the home at pretty good basis and you know usually you know you know slightly below what the market would bear because we're coming with a really strong offer and then we take over you know where the real estate agent really earns their money in most instances uh, or, or sometimes it's getting it from offer accepted to close because you have to help you know navigate the lender have to navigate all the inspections we do all that and we tell the resident you know when their keys day is we clean up the house we try to you know, give them a, a better experience than they would with a mortgage. I remember when we got our first home with a mortgage, I moved into the house and there's like wires hanging from the wall and like, we were like exhausted. We just were like, okay, we we're here. You know, there's a thousand projects to do already. Welcome to homeownership. Uh, we try to, to make sure the homes are in great condition. They arrive. And then once they're in the home, they're ultimately responsible for the day-to-day maintenance, but we take on the big stuff. And this is another thing about lining incentives. We should be better as a company of evaluating the risk that that roof is going to get a leak, that that, that water heater is going to go out, that the AC is going to go out during the term, better than the individual. So we're we're accounting for that risk and we'll bear the cost of those things. And then we expect the individual to better control their kids from flushing their toothbrush down the, down the toilet and all the things that, you know, that they can control of changing out the air filters and whatnot. And that reduces our operational cost, but also it's kind of the expectation of folks. The one difference is, and this is pulling from collective health, and I actually recruited my head of operations and product from Collective Health, um, Irene, who's fantastic, to build out the back end for this and think through it, is that we, we provide a number to call. So, you know, most people, when they get in their home and something breaks, they call their dad, maybe. <laughs> but there's no number to call. We provide a number to call and we'll tell them, hey, yeah, your toilet's running. Here's, here's some things you can do to triage that. If you want us to send out a plumber, we can. It's going to cost, you know, X amount. We'll add it to your monthly bill. Or you can take care of it yourself. We'll send you a YouTube video. And we have both types of customers. We have the folks that are like, please send a plumber out. I don't want to deal with this. I'm too busy. And we have folks that say, yeah, uh, I, I just did a thing on the video and it cost me five bucks to order that part. And I just saved myself 195 bucks. I really appreciate it. Both of them love the product and the experience because we kind of meet people where they're at. And we've talked about providing that white glove service as a additional revenue stream uh, for folks. But right now it's just all the cart if they if they want to uh, have us dispatch a service provider we will of course yeah yeah so there's so many different ways to expand a business like that once you've established the relationship I it actually harkens back for me to Ku Financial Bia Ku from uh, China which is operating at a very very different scale I mean they are operating with billions of residents in their system but they've taken over uh, complete control of the entire home ownership experience from beginning to end and 
in China where there are no privacy laws or anything like that, and people are accustomed to having the government or institutions completely intimately engaged in their lives, some of the stories you hear about the level of control they have of the lives of the people living in the residences that they own and control is is just mind-blowing. But as a business model, uh, I can see how creating the platform then creates a lot of opportunities for ancillary revenue streams. And that's uh, obviously ex- an exciting facet of any business model. If we take a summary perspective uh, and try to sort of bullet point what it is that, that Acre is doing. One, you're de-risking the notion of investment for institutional parties by creating an alignment of incentives with the occupants of those homes and using some of the uh, tools that you, you referenced to mitigate the front-end risk as well by selecting better properties, including getting the input of the occupants, which I think is a really good idea, and getting them to buy into the decision of where they want to live, because if they want to live there, they probably want to stay there, and they'll probably keep paying the rent. So I I really buy that. I buy that alignment of incentives, and I think that's great in, in any business model. The second bullet point I would say is that from the perspective of the uh, occupant, uh, you're creating a more cohesive, collaborative relationship with the financial party, the capital party that's behind the investment versus the relationship or complete lack thereof they might have with a mortgage uh, lender, a, a bank or other institution that's giving them a mortgage on a home. And then three is you're creating these opportunities for a through this partnership, a better level of service and a better experience while owning the home uh, by providing some of these ancillary benefits, cooperation, collaboration, problem solving, troubleshooting, and all these enhancements you can add to the platform. So if I am correctly grasping sort of the three big bullet points of what you're offering is, that's what I'm hearing out of what you're saying. And then I would add a fourth, which is that you're aligning your company and its mission also focusing on alignment of incentives with some of the other third parties that are involved in the home buying and home ownership experience. And I think the most important of those that you mentioned is aligning yourselves with the realtors. If you can make their jobs easier and help guide them to working with you because it's an easier, better, more certain transaction than if they weren't working with you, you're creating your sales team right there on the front lines with every one of those realtors that's out there banging on doors and, and trying to transact homes across the country. Yeah, that's, that's 100% right. I think that you, you nailed it, Chad. Uh, that's a great summary and, and, and slightly different take, but, but we're saying the same things. Yeah. And I think that we are, one of our you know, inherent competitive advantages is that we spent, I spent uh, a couple of years and my co-founder spent five years working with real estate agents to, to understand their business and build them software so they could win more business. And we actually really do. I value real estate agents tremendously in that uh, they provide a tremendous amount of emotional support, financial support, advice, trust, knowledge that's hard to replicate because they understand that street, they understand that home, uh, and they're a great partner uh, up and through the transaction. Uh, And we're just providing, we we like to say, we're giving them another, another arrow in their quiver. For their folks. I'm glad as well that you acknowledged a very, very important word in there, which is emotional. And that's why I don't do residential. I don't touch residential real estate at all because that's the piece of it that's a mystery to me. And it's a piece of it that's an unquantifiable <laughs> yeah. risk for me. 
because there's so much emotion involved in decisions made about homeownership. And it sounds like you've created a system that's based upon a lot of data, a lot of analytics, and a lot of structuring of incentives to take some of that emotional component out of the equation and, and add some framework and some rigor to the, the realm of residential real estate. But you're still acknowledging that emotional component and the attachment that people have to their homes and, and working through the realtors and working in the way that you're building your relationship with the occupants in these homes. I think you're really embracing that emotional component rather than being afraid of it and running from it. And I think that's essential to succeed in the residential space. Yeah, I think that that's, that's right. I, I remember there was a uh, Charlie Munger quote about when it was the right time to buy your home. He had a, he had a Berkshire Hathaway analyst that raised his hand at one of these conferences and said, you know, I got all this Berkshire Hathaway stock. Like when, should I sell this to buy a home? When's the right time to buy a home? And he said, the right time to buy a home is when your spouse tells you you need to buy a home. <laughs> this is not, this is, this is an emotional, this, you got to get your family started on the right foot. You got to make sure that you're, you're doing the, you know, this is not a, necessarily a financial decision you're making. This is a life decision. Absolutely. And there's a difference. Absolutely. Well, I think we've gotten a really good feel for the landscape, uh, the acre that you're occupying. And now is the time in this podcast where we sort of get to turn the tables and, I'll let you ask the questions now. I have a general understanding. The friends and family listening have a general understanding of your business. We've heard the pitch. We've heard the strength and the the attributes of uh, your platform and and all the hard work that's gone into building it. What can we do for you? Well, Chad, I'm looking forward to this section because I've I've been listening to your podcast and I, I know that you have a lot of knowledge to share. And so one of the things that really struck me, and it seems must seem obvious to you, but it, it's one of the one of your your adages is that. Maybe it's not an adage, but maybe it's just something you said. But real estate is really about mitigating risk, right, at its core, uh, more so than seeking opportunity, right? There's certainly a component of it is seeking opportunity, but a lot of it is how do we mitigate risk? Because um, we're talking about a small margin of error here between a profitable venture and, and one that's not. Um, and so you know, I'm transitioning from a, a, a world, and frankly, we're building a company because we think there is a tremendous opportunity here. But as we go out and talk to investors or talk to folks like yourself, what are the signals that we've done a, a good enough job to mitigate risk along the way that you would look for. And I think that it's different at different pools of capital. I'd love to hear your take on that as well. When, when you're first starting out and you're going after you know, those early investment dollars all the way through to when you're recording those institutional dollars. And so I'll, I'll let you take it from there. Sure. It's a, it's a really important question. And I do think that risk mitigation, risk management is an important facet of any business model. And I think there are two layers of risk that you're implicitly including in that question. Because if you're going to an investor, the investor is looking at what is the risk inherent within the company? And then the second bucket of risk is what is the risk inherent in the business model of the company? And so I think that you've already put some good thought in and have explained some of the ideas and concepts around how you're mitigating risk in your business model. You've presented that effectively to us here today. You've talked about this alignment of incentives. You've talked about how giving people ownership of things is one of the most valuable tools to preserving an asset. And I had a whole course at Stanford about private ownership and how much that revolutionized the progress of the United States as compared to the rest of the world in a non-capitalist environment where uh, property owner rights were not guaranteed to people. You've done a great job in the explaining your business model itself and how it has facets of it that are designed to address the inherent risks 
in the real estate world and particularly in the residential real estate world. Now, what I haven't yet heard in your business model risk management uh, pitch is how you guys accommodate for potentially massive changes in the market and how your business performs when the market goes south. Because it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. There will be in the strongest of real estate markets, taking into account all of those things you talked about and how you were selecting markets and looking for assets that had high potential of increase in, in basis. I trust that your algorithm and I trust that your approach is in fact leading you to the best opportunities, but there are global changes in the residential real estate market. You talked about the GFC in 2008, that had a massive impact on all real estate, regardless of its quality, and nothing was immune. There will be another GFC. It's going to be something else that creates it, but we have to plan for those kinds of situations. And we have to be able to articulate to investors how resilient the business model can be or what the contingency plan is to quantify the downside in those circumstances. You can't gloss over it, pretend it's not going to happen. You have to be acknowledging it, addressing it, and quantifying it in terms of the impact to your business. So that's one. And on the business operation side, I think you should spend time analyzing that part of your, your model and stress testing it in a virtual way to say, what does this end up look, looking like in a way that you can then communicate and articulate all of that to your investors? Fantastic point. I mean, and, and the best people at poking at your business model when it comes to risk and systemic risk are, are lenders, right? Because that is just all they think about every day is what happens in the downturn. How does this perform? We've been fortunate enough to the Poland folks on the team that have lived through the GFC and have worked at a, a larger financial institutions and understand that I think we're all a little hungover from the GFC still 10 years plus later of, of worrying about home prices. And I do think that the ability to understand the inherent risk and to build your business model around that, you know, even simple things like how much leverage are we going to put on an individual home? Right. You know, it'd be easy if we leverage these things up to scale quicker, right? If we, if we put on a lot of leverage, but in a downturn, that's where you end up destroying your business because you got a little bit aggressive. And so just making sure we're very prudent about the amount of debt that we actually layer in, um, the partners we work with, the individuals that we work with, the residents that we we work with as well, verifying, you know, and we're underwriting the home, we're underwriting the individual, and then we have to swim in this macro market, like you're saying, that is cyclical. All the people that have been in real estate for decades get that. And they're the ones that are holding back in the, in the times of plenty and saying, I'm not going to go there. And they're the ones that are still there when, when the world shifts. So we're, we're hoping to be in, the, in that column. Well, and I'm glad you brought up lenders because you're right. The len lenders are so allergic to risk and they really focus on every way they can to mitigate risk and making loans. I actually have a specific referral for you here. Uh, and that is someone who comes from both the Spire family and from the Datages family. There's a new episode of Datages that includes not one, but two bankers, former bankers in this case, Wayne Brandt, formerly of Wells Fargo, and Ron Sturzniger, formerly of Bank of America, both members of Spire as well. The one that I'm going to refer you to primarily, and, and you'll hear why in a second, is Ron Sturzniger, because Ron Sturzniger for Bank of America served as their legacy asset specialist. What does that mean? Ron was promoted into the worst job on the entire planet, which was cleaning up the entire countrywide mess. 
in 2010-11 after the GFC. So he has lived through the aftermath of that worst case scenario and has looked at it from a lender's perspective of how do you evolve your way out of a complex, terrible situation. And I think he's someone that could help you come up with an approach to analytically stress test your business model and what you're doing for those kinds of circumstances. I love that. I I think that understanding how those folks think about the world because they do it day in and day out and having seen, you know, it's not just theoretical for, for someone like uh, Ron, he's, he's seen it and lived it. Uh, I think that's helpful. Let's, let's put up our theory against his reality and and see how, how he thinks it's going to play out. This is, this is really good stuff. Absolutely. And he, he ran a a huge team at bank of America, thousands of people that were working on solving these problems. So He's going to be a great resource for you and, and can probably connect you to some of the people that were doing the analytics for them in the back room inside that black box uh, who might be able to help you actually model what you're talking about in a, in a really quantitative way. Now, let me talk about the other type of risk that was inherent, uh, implicit in your question uh, about talking to investors, and that is, what is the risk around your business? How sustainable is your company and how are you presenting your company in a way that an investor knows that it's going to be resilient? And I think that you've done a good job in some of the materials that I've seen of setting forth a very strong management team, showing people that have built resilient platforms in the past and have done so successfully, showing people that have a track record of addressing the various aspects and components of your business from technology to management to accounting and the, the financial side of the business and all of those things, uh, you've, you've shown a robust team. And I think that's really valuable. One of the pieces that's important is helping to the investor to see the level of commitment of those team members, seeing how aligned they are with your company, seeing the role that they're playing. If you have any key individuals that have themselves elected to invest into the company, those are things that you uh, should you don't have to broadcast that publicly, but when you start engaging with investors, those are things that you can put forth that will help them understand the resilience of the company. I'm evaluating an investment in a company right now, and they brought in a new CEO who's a longtime veteran of Microsoft. He was there for 20 plus years, senior executive of Microsoft, phenomenal leader. And just the fact that he would join an early stage company is a great rubber stamp on that company. The very first question I asked, because they're soliciting investment from me, how much money is he putting in? Absolutely. I'll put in the same amount of money that he's putting in and not a penny more. That's that's awesome. No, we're all invested in both the uh, in both the operating company and in, in, in our real estate fund. You know, in fact, it's a, you know, it's a great investment. Now, and it's nice to be investing in something that you have, you know, your hands in because you can understand where, you know, where it really sings. And I do think that there's something about that ownership mentality. Like you said, it is the same thing. Putting your assets, your investment dollars at risk makes it really important. 100% agree. And I think that highlighting that is is really key. I think that some people actually in real estate take that for granted. They just would be shocked if you weren't investing in your own fund. Skin in the game. 100%. In in the startup world, sometimes you're looking at People with no net worth, you know, like how much do you invest? And they're investing, you know, their their blood, sweat, and tears in whatever assets they have uh, to 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 make the thing work. And maybe you're bootstrapping a little bit, but in real estate, I feel like if you're not putting in some skin in the game, you're not you're not really invested. You don't really care about the outcomes as much. So I'm 100 aligned on that front. The next question I have is: you just mentioned it. You're you're investing in technology. You're also investing in real estate. When you think about the decision of where to invest, 
in these two kind of different, because it's different types of capital, like different types of return expected from, from each. What are the things that are different? And then also really interesting, what are the things that are, are the same across those? So that would be interesting for me to hear. Sure, sure. So I'll give you one general piece of philosophy that guides my personal investments. And I think that it probably applies to others who are evaluating these decisions as well, is that I'm always trying to find that fine balance between diversification and concentration. I don't want to over diversify. Everyone talks about diversify, diversify, diversify. That's the best way to mitigate risk. But I've found that when you over diversify, when something goes right, you don't have enough investment in it to actually realize that to overcome any of the things that were flat or down. You have to be really focused about making investments and understanding the fundamentals of them and then committing to the things that you feel strongest about and doing it in a substantial way. Otherwise, you're not ever really going to see a worthy return because you've just spread yourself too thin. And so when you're talking to investors, I think that's what you really need to align yourself with is keep in mind that they're thinking that way and say, not try to position yourself as, oh, this is a real estate play or, oh, this is a technology play. And I think the great the greatest example or debate about this topic was WeWork. Everyone, the, the founder of WeWork did an amazing job of convincing the entire world that they were a technology company and that they should have a multiple attached to them that established their value equivalent to a technology company. Those of us in the real estate industry said, that's just a real estate company. Why should they get a valuation that's any higher than any other real estate company out there like KB Home? When you look at their income and you look at their EBITDA and you look at the multiple that's determining their valuation, why should WeWork be treated any differently? And lo and behold, at the end of this whole adventure, they came down to that level and it looked like a tremendous loss because they had oversold their potential. And so this is my point to you is don't get enamored with the whiz-bang wizardry technology of what you're doing and set expectations too high for your investors. Instead, I would focus on what is, I don't want to say the weakest, but what is the most resilient bottom line valuation metric for your, your company, and then show how you've underpriced yourself as compared to where you could be in the future because you have all of these other ancillary revenue streams that derive from your technology and your model and all of the other things you can add on top of it. Don't oversell trying to capture that technology valuation from the technology investors and alienate the real estate investors. Undervalue yourselves and undersell at this stage based upon the fundamentals and then capture attention from those technology-driven types of investors by painting that picture for them separately, but explaining how much of a great deal they're getting and how much of a discount because of the fact that you're working in the real estate space and you've pegged your valuation that way. And I actually, in some ways, equate this to advice that I give to young people who are trying to find their way into an organization and find a job. I always tell them one of the greatest things to be in any job is underpaid. Because you can very clearly demonstrate your value and you create certainty that you're going to be around. It's, it's a good way to create job certainty is by being underpaid. Similarly, it's a good way to cultivate investment 
and a good way to ensure that you maintain a pathway of continued success in deriving investment to always undersell and undervalue yourselves in the way that you're positioning it to capture the greatest investment audience. I love that. I, I also love the idea of not not wanting. You always want to be providing more value than you're taking, right? Absolutely. So it's an easy. You're you're always going to be around. You don't want to be in a situation where you're over your skis. You don't be the person getting paid the most in an organization unless you're absolutely the, the biggest rock star there, uh, because the world works in cycles. And uh, when you're going through the list of like where do we save the most dollars as we cut rolls, uh, that that stands out pretty quick. And one other thing that I would say, and I don't know that you're ready for it at this moment. This may be a comment that creates value uh, for you in a year or two, is that you have so many benefits that you can offer to some very established companies in the residential real estate space. And I come back to the, the realtors because there's some really big realtor organizations that have a lot of capital behind them. And some of them are very loosely affiliated where they're all operating independently, but they're all some pretty big brokerage houses that focus on residential brokerage. And I think that by aligning yourselves with one of them as a strategic partner leads to the opportunity for strategic investment. So I would focus on trying to make your, trying to shift your focus rather on customer acquisition to not just acquiring your individual customers, but acquiring uh, these institutional players within the residential space, like the brokerage house, as a customer, as a channel partner, because they're going to evolve into being strategic investors. And maybe even beyond that, they'll evolve into being strategic acquirers of your company and could present a very good exit strategy for you down the road. That's, that's really, uh, really smart, Chad. I think we've also, there's other big players like that, like builders, for example, that yeah. Uh, would really value another acquisition channel in the, in the early days that, that might, you know, really consider, that, you know. You know the, the landscape far better than I do of the major players in that space. Uh, I'm just saying in a business model perspective, try to align yourselves with those players, as you just said, because those may become your best investors. I also like your point about not being greedy. I think if you're going to build a business that's going to sustain over the long term, be fair in your pricing, right? And don't be greedy. And one of the the easiest way to invite competition is to overprice and to, you know, people are like, I, you're, you're looking for the 70% margin off, off, out the gate. You're going to invite a ton of competition in. And if you're the Amazons of the world, you've learned, let's, let's make things inexpensive. Let's focus on being more operational efficient and, and just eking out uh, a little percentage here or there of, of margin. And that keeps competition at bay because nobody wants to jump into a market where margins are thin. Um, but we're, we're trying to build a, a massive company here and we're happy to give, the benefit of coming in early and investing to our early investors, uh, make sure that they have a, feel like they have a piece of the company as it grows and can benefit from us over the long term, as well as, you know, not, you know, we don't, you know, not, not having to try to make all our money on day one. Like we want to get to a scale. Uh, and then you earn the right, like you said, to partner with bigger players, but also to do, you know, at that point in time, do the cool stuff with technology because none of that stuff makes sense yeah. in, until you're at scale. Yeah. So uh, we want to provide amazing in-home services and extra ancillary revenues down the line, but that's not even on our radar right now. Right now we are the unsexiest business in the world, which is let's go have some credit enhanced single family residential real estate for investors. Let's, you know, let's create a better experience for folks as they're buying and living in a home. And so, you know, being a, a great partner for our residents, a great partner for our investors and not being greedy and just executing 
well every day. I think that's the that's the key the the, the strategy here, which actually is a very comfort pl- comfortable place for me to be in. Yeah. In that I like making operations hum. I like mitig- you know I, as much as I, I I beat up my old company where I ended up paying myself in the corner of being the risk mitigator. I like systemically mitigating all the risk and then pulling in you know folks around the table to to, to fill in my gaps as an entrepreneur. One of the things that I think is really important, we talk about the desire to scale up this business. Um, and I think that where the intergenerational wisdom or the mentorship really helps is seeing around the corners as you as your business inevitably changes as you scale. And I've, I've lived through some of this in different contexts, but not necessarily in, in real estate and acquiring multiple assets across you know, multiple markets. And, you know, I would fall back on my heels of the things that I know that work in other business contexts, like hiring junior leaders that you trust and empowering them to make decisions and then providing a mission where people can align behind. But um, I'm curious if there's, you know, other or just rules of thumb or things that you think of that, that as, as adages that would help us see around the corners as we go from tens of homes to hundreds of homes to thousands of homes in multiple markets and what's going to break and and what are the what are the advice you have for us as we build out our team as we look to mitigate risks and ensure that we can take the what I think are pretty phenomenal you know execution of this plan uh, today and, and scale it across multiple markets. Well, one of the things that I love about the culture that you're building and it reflects your own personal value system, which means it's authentic and that that means a lot, is this uh, notion of accountability and everything about your organization really centers around one word that I keep hearing over and over and over again. And I really gravitate toward this word, ownership. You are all about ownership. I think that is maybe the single most fundamental core value that I'm hearing out of the story of Acre. And so I think that the notion of ownership has to be a part of your corporate culture in order to ensure that scalability and then ensure as you grow that every person that comes into the organization has ownership of what it is they're doing. And one of the things that I have adopted as a part of my corporate culture, and it's it's one of the core values of my company, is that in a professional setting, responsibility is a luxury and accountability is the price that you pay for it. And I look for people who embrace that. And so I think a lot of this comes down to your HR and who you hire. You need to hire people that embrace that same mentality that you and I embrace. You have to hire people that buy into that culture. And the best way to do that is to structure their position and structure their compensation in such a way that it's self-selecting. You need to build your organization with the people that buy in 100%. And you need to not, not just weed out, never even engage the people that don't. You need to structure it in such a way that ideally, for every as you're growing, for every 10 people you interview, you should hire one, maybe two. And it's not that you're making the decision, it's that they tell you to go to hell because they don't buy the offer you're putting in front of them. It's not good enough. It doesn't recognize their worth. It doesn't recognize their value. It doesn't recognize what they can bring to the team. That's not the guy you want. You want the man or woman that is going to recognize that your culture is built on ownership and they have to come in being willing to own their aspect of the business. So I think that you're really, your most fundamental pathway to success is in your HR and who you hire and how you grow your team in order to be able to do what you want to do and the way you want to do it in your business, as I understand it from talking to you. I, I love that. Uh, I think that that very much resonates with me. And um, I think that 
HR is important, but ultimately you can't outsource hiring decisions. It's got to be, uh, it's got to be from your leadership. It's got to be from your founding team. Um, and as soon as you get away from the fact, you know, from the point where you're interviewing everybody, which is what we do uh, at Acre, we, you know, we, we have a process, but within that process, we make sure that every one of the, the founders of the company talks to our, our, our new hires. As soon as you break that and you say, okay, we're too big to do that, you run into issues and, and it's hard to replicate. And as soon as you hire someone where you have a little bit of a red flag, but you don't know how to articulate it, it always ends up for that. You're like, you finally learn how to articulate it within six months of that hire and go, okay, now I, now I can put some thoughts around why this was bothering me. I wish I had spoken up louder. We were moving too quick and we hired this person. So I, I've lived through this before and it resonates with me completely about just being disciplined on who you bring in because your culture is a product you can control a little bit, but people bring with them culture. And they bring with them their, like you said, their own view of the world. And if they don't buy into your mission and they're just there as a mercenary, they're they're never going to really understand the why and be able to make the right decisions in the tough moments. And I think that in this industry in real estate, when you're talking about margin of error being really important between a great property and a bad like there's always an exception that comes up. Uh, having people understand the why we're building this, how we're going to treat this person, right, this resident, like uh, one of our, our key values in an, an adage is, you know, you treat people like you want to be treated. It's that easy. Yeah. It sounds easy, uh, but people get grumpy and they get upset and they, they start blaming the customer pretty quick unless you have built that culture out from, from day one. Uh, and you're not going to grow a sustainable business, a brand uh, that people are loyal to if you aren't treating them like with empathy and how you want to be treated. Yeah. And I would say the other piece of that is building a set of systems and processes. And I can tell you're good at this as well that are resilient to turnover, um, that you can plug and play a resource in your organization without the organization skipping a beat. That's also part of the equation is no matter how well you do hiring, you're going to have turnover. And so you have to build an organization that can withstand that turnover and bounce back very quickly uh, by plugging and playing a new resource and by creating some cross-functionality. So if you lose a resource, you got somebody else laterally that knows that job and can do that job uh, if that position is not filled for, for any, any particular time period. Yeah. And I love that because it's the intersection of process and culture, right? Because you can have all the process in the world, but if people aren't bought in on that interoperability, uh, what you'll see in some organizations is that, um, power becomes like, I am the only one that knows how to do this thing. So you need me and I'm going to use that. Um, and if you don't stamp out that mentality and say, no, 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 we share knowledge, uh, we all want to be resilient here as a business. If you need to go out because your kid is sick, someone can pick up the ball. Uh, we all need to know how we do all this. There's no black boxes here. It's been interesting to see the shift as we've gone from everybody's in the office and that tribal knowledge gets passed between the side conversations and, oh, how do you do that? Let me let me jump on board and, and watch you do this for a little bit. Let me walk around the office and kind of see uh, what, what folks and other functions are doing to the world we are today. We're, we're, we have a strong base of operations here in Raleigh-Durham, but we also have folks in California, we've got folks in Colorado and, and New York that are on our team. And so we've benefited from building a hybrid company before the pandemic and then also living with everybody through it, making sure that we're working out loud. And when we're solving hard problems, they're well-documented of why we solved it the way we were. And when we make a decision, that decision is communicated clearly across the company and effectively. And we're not always perfect on that. And that's another part of like the culture. You have to be able to willing to say, guys, we can do that better. This person was still confused. We didn't properly announce this decision we made because they weren't in the room and using process technology tools, but also the culture of reinforcing good behavior 
you know, I tell people the next employee imprints on how you act and if the way you communicate, they're going to do something similar. So do your best up front and we're going to be only as good as the, the work you guys are doing right now. Uh, so even if you don't think it's that important, it's super important. Absolutely. And the third and final point I'll make about this scaling is, again, another component of your external business model that you're putting in place for your customers and for your investors that I, I think you need to continue to focus on doing it internally as well is alignment of incentives. If you build a corporate structure that creates incentives for everyone there that align them with your objectives and what is going to make the company successful, the rest of it's going to take care of itself. So again, if it's picking the right people that are part of the culture, creating an environment of accountability, creating a structure that's resilient, plug and play, and then aligning everyone's incentives, if you can do those things, you can kind of put these concerns not to bed but set them aside because you've built a structure that can grow while maintaining exactly what you're looking for without you having to grab the reins and hold on to it to make it happen. Yeah, I think it leads back to the initial example I had from my army days of coming in and seeing the leader that was trying to do it all themselves and they were just destroyed, exactly. not sleeping. Exactly. And and you know being able to find the right incentives and ownership and hand off the right things and make people accountable. It's a little bit of work up front and might take some convincing and it might take a little bit of courage to hand off things that you want to look at every day. But if done correctly, it allows you to grow and scale and not lose your sanity in the process. And so hopeful to do that. Again, easier said than done. All this stuff, easier said than done than in practice. Yeah, you don't you don't want to be the mechanic, you want to be the general. Yeah, that's right. That's that's right. But you want your mechanic to really love that vehicle and want to be taken care of Absolutely. it and to know that it's theirs and that that has an important piece of the overall fight and that they're helping uh, they understand what the mission is and how that they're able to help us win that mission over time. This goes back. It's a little bit more specific question, which is, you know, as we go out to market and we're communicating this to, and I, again, my focus here, I think we've done a lot of work on the consumer side. And I think the agents are a great partner and we're doing a lot of direct marketing and messaging. And we actually have a backlog of, of potential customers right now. And the, the main governor we have as this scale is that we're, and in the macro environment that we're in, which I'd love, that's my follow-on question to this is how do you think about that? But we'll put that to the side, is that raising capital for real estate is more is difficult, right? And raising capital, we've seen a lot of signs from the institutional investors, from the larger players that you know want to write $50 million checks into this asset class, that they really like what we're doing. They like the credit enhancement of what we're doing. They like that we're focusing right now on higher quality real estate, and that we're able to get solid yields on higher quality real estate because of our different model. But the initial investors that we've been successful in raising money from as we build out our initial portfolio, because uh, those bigger guys want to see us in 50 to 100 homes. They want to see uh, a couple turns and see you know, how the, the residents do over the course of time, get some operational time frame, I guess, or experience on the ground, just have see the model in play for, for a number of years. How do you think about communicating this? Again, we're talking about what should be a relatively low risk investment. We're not talking about excessive returns for our investors. You know, we're talking about real estate returns. How do you get folks excited about, or what would you want to hear as an investor from that would be compelling from us as far as convincing, you know, and I think this is the market of high net worth, family office, and maybe uh, type individuals that are interested in this stage, right? How do you get them? They have tons of opportunities floating about. How do you stand out, but also come across as kind of this risk averse? The key in sourcing investment from real estate focused investors is real estate investors are accustomed to seeing proof of a model. 
Um, they want to see a circumstance where it's yep. show, don't tell. Show me what has worked. Don't tell me exactly. what's going to work. And so if you want to pursue that class of investors, which I think you do, I very much think you do, for all the reasons we talked about before, in addition to underselling and undervaluing yourselves, you need to over show uh, results. And if that means that you've got to bootstrap a little bit more to get to the end of some deal cycles, whatever that means in the way that it's framed, or at least get to a milestone point where you have a measurable, tangible plateau that can be demonstrated of value creation, um, you have to be able to show a full cycle because Anytime I go to raise capital for a traditional real estate deal, that's what I'm asked for is show me your track record. Show me a deal you've done. Show me 10 deals you've done. Ideally, show me 100 deals you've done and show me the outcomes of those deals and how they've come around. The other thing I'll say is let the numbers talk for you. Use fewer words and more numbers. And the other is when you are using words, use fewer words in general. Listening to the way that you present in reading your materials uh, and, and what you've put forward that I had a chance to take a look at, the one piece of constructive criticism that I'll provide is one word, brevity. Try to be yeah. more concise, really nail your elevator pitch, try to hone it down both in how you talk and in how you present in writing and in presentations, much fewer words. If you need that many words to tell the story, you're telling the wrong story. Understood. No, that makes perfect sense. I appreciate that, Chad. I feel like the world has changed for us yeah. since we've, we've been in operations now for over a year. Uh, I think that that has, we can point to that operational experience over the last year yeah. and Real data. that has really opened up a lot of doors. I think the other thing that has changed and been very helpful is that we've been able to show that as one, as the market kind of had uncertainty with interest rates, that we didn't jump, we didn't run into the bedsaw, as they say, and continue to buy homes. We yeah. stepped back, we watched you know, home prices, we we're very analytical about it. We didn't you know, waste any of our investors' dollars on buying homes if we thought there was going to be a major correction. Turns out the correction wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. I didn't think it was going to be that bad, but the world was kind of holding bated breath to see you know, what would happen to home prices in the U.S., uh, especially, again, we're all hungover from the great financial crisis. I think the only certainty that we have in our world today, and I think it's not just a short-term thing, I think this is a, a change that's going to be with us for a long time, maybe forever, is that the only certainty we have is uncertainty. We, at every level, at every institution, globally uh, and individually, are confronted by uncertainty. And I think that you have to play into that. You have to understand that. You have to be reassuring. You have to be confident in the way you present to people. You have to be disciplined in the way that you execute your business. All of those things I know you are. I'm just encouraging you to, to continue with the same. And I think that's, you know, to your point about the, the macro environment and what we're dealing with. It is that uncertainty. And we all have to fight our way through it in our own way. And, you know, in the spirit of focusing on being uh, concise and focusing on being brief and, and using fewer words, I think we've arrived at a good point to, to wrap up for today. There's much more to talk about, obviously, and there's much more for your business in terms of evolution and next steps. And we want to be here. We want to be part of your story. We want to be part of your journey. We want to stick with you. And so don't treat this as the end of a conversation. Treat this as the beginning of a dialogue uh, between you and, and the Datages, friends and family. 
it's great to have you be a part of, of what we're doing here. And one last uh, piece of what I'll, I'll give you a chance to chime in on here is one of the legacies that we try to preserve here at Datages, and we come back to at the end of every one of our episodes, is the opportunity to preserve the legacy of the bad dad joke. And I'm wondering if you have a zinger that you uh, have on, on board that you can share with our audience today before we wrap up. You know, I, I did a little testing on the kiddos before this, and the one that they laughed the most at was a little bit dark, but we'll go with it, and uh, we'll, we'll okay. see how it goes. So when I die, I want to die peacefully and in my sleep, like my granddad. I don't want to die screaming for my life and terrified like all the passengers in his car. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, uh, you were telling me that your family uh, – uh, was it your grandfather that had the gunfight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, there was a little bit of, yeah, my, my great-granddad died in a gunfight. That's right. Great-grandfather. So, so go out like your great-grandfather in a gunfight, not like this uh, imaginary grandfather in a terrible, tragic car accident. Yeah, exactly. Asleep at the wheel. Exactly, exactly. That's wonderful. Well, Chad, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to have me on the show. Uh, I hope that it comes out good. And we, we've shared some wisdom uh, that can be used across your listeners here, your friends and family. And I'm really Absolutely. excited to be part of the Datages friends and family here. I hope to see you guys soon with updates on how Acre's going and, and to check in. So we'll be in touch. Definitely. Thank you so much for your time, Kent. Thanks for being on the corner. And uh, we appreciate you being part of Datages. And uh, to, to you and to the rest of Datages friends and family, Remember, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table, and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.